Hey, it's Antonio, and we're back with another episode of Who Cares If You Listen. And on today's podcast, I sat down with Stefan Geiger. Steph and I went to high school together. I've had a few people from high school on my podcast, but haven't really spoken to him in any way, shape, or form for about 15 years or so. So it was interesting because obviously we were going to be in a high school frame of mind and I didn't really like who I was in high school. I imagine a lot of you listening don't have fond memories of high school either. And so it was sort of interesting to come to terms with things that I didn't like about myself. And then, of course, from there, going on into a heady conversation as I as I always try to do. But, you know, it was interesting to sort of reflect on as I was going through and editing all the echoes and trying to make the audio a little bit more bearable. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm in a good place in life now. I like who I am, but you need to accept who you were even at those times when perhaps you were very awkward and needlessly edgy as a 15 year old, but such is life. Anyways, I think this ended up being an interesting conversation with someone who really wasn't on my radar in terms of, you know, people that I I was going to keep in regular touch with, but I had fun doing it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. And if not, well, who cares if you listen? Shelter? You're prepping shelter? This is the basement, like just immediately below the stairs to my basement. I didn't know that this room existed until we'd lived in the house about 18 months. It's like That's right beh- amazing. It's right behind the furnace and the hot water tank. And basically, I was working from home for, for the longest time. And then when the kids were born... I'm oh, like, yeah? I Why have, is that? I just enjoy it. Oh, okay. It's it's great. I, I didn't <laughs> have to drive anywhere. I could wear sweatpants and still do my job. And I was, I was trying to make a COVID stupidity joke, but... Oh, I'm sorry. But no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed... start. I thoroughly enjoyed it for years, and then I gave up on it around um, the time the kids were born. So that would be like summer of 2019. I decided to go back and do an office so I could just get the hell out of home. And then COVID happened, and this was Catherine's first time around working at home, and she took my office to do her, her government workings from upstairs in my office. So then, lo and behold, I ended up here in the basement like a troll with my... <laughs> Uh, leftover electronics, my uh, cigar collection, and just old paint cans kind of strewn around over here. Nice, nice. I, I had I had visions listening to a few of the other episodes, like your conversation with John. There were like books in the background, and I, I pictured, you know, some library with rich mahogany. And I, I don't publish any of the video. So I yeah. try to keep the visual <laughs> references to a minimum. As, as Zach DeLong said, it ends up being like a docent, just like walking through an art gallery describing it in painstaking <laughs> detail. So I think this is probably the most we've talked in 15 years. I think so. Obviously been thinking about that lately, but uh, I think there was like one instance where we crossed paths, maybe like on Carleton campus during undergrad. Sure. But did, other did you go to that, Carleton? Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. But other than that, I don't think we've 
had more than like a two sentence conversation since we graduated in 2004. Well, there you go. So there'll be plenty of fodder for the mill, as it were. Yes. Plenty of grist for the cannon. Yeah. I'm mixing my metaphors there. So, yeah, I uh, feel like we need to catch up on about 34 collective years of life. More or less, yeah. I, um, I'm i thinking particularly what sort of inspired this was you messaged me and Arthur out of the blue and reminded me about a radio play that we did in grade 10 dramatic arts class at, uh, at Immaculata. Do you want to describe that very briefly? Oh, yes. I mean, what more is there to say than it was about... Uh, catastrophe on the Russian space station and we knew to name it mere madness. I think for 10th grade drama class that was pretty good. Having re-listened to most of it and I couldn't quite That's bring another myself, story. <laughs> I couldn't quite bring myself to go through it in its entirety. Would, would you record that same radio play today <laughs> as a 34 year old in 2020? No, that radio play has aged like milk. Uh, I don't know that it was ever good. <laughs> no, I don't think it was. I do recall the audience reception when we played it in our class was muted at best. Like, I feel like we thought we were being very edgy. And perhaps for 16-year-olds, we, we were, or 15-year-olds. But it's one of those things where, like, your neocortex hasn't quite formed and and... In today's day and age, like this was pre-social media, I feel like if we did something like that with just very hackneyed comedy and a lot of like really bad sort of ethnic stereotypes, I think I think we would get canceled for something like that. I definitely do. I definitely do. It is it is very cringe-inducing, and I would say um, we thought we were being edgy. I would say we were edgy in that it was just so so like crass and offensive in that way we succeeded in being edgy but yes um not uh, not something i would repeat or condone or endorse like 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 i've been giving this a lot of thought i had ian mendez on my show a few weeks back and we talked about this hockey player mitchell miller and I mean, I'm not comparing mere madness to this kid. Like this kid <laughs> was was seriously evil. Do you know about this story? No. He's like a third round draft pick of the Phoenix Coyotes, and then it came to light after he'd been drafted. Like the, the team sort of knew about it, but they kind of brushed it under under the floor that um, he had beat up this like mentally disabled black kid at his high school and like Ooh. called him racial epitaphs at ep, ep, epithets. That's that's the one, not an epitaph. Um, epitaph is different. That's a deathbed <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. He he said some racist things and he beat up a person of color and uh he you know as far as I can tell he just sort of played it off as, as boys will be boys. And very disturbing. I mean, look. the Phoenix Coyotes walked away from him. Like they said, he never even apologized to this kid. Um, but at the same time, like, I can't help but wonder, like, I've done a lot of, not to that extent, thank goodness, but, like, I've done a lot of stupid things for which I have regret. And are we f simply fortunate that we grew up in an era where you kind of get a do-over when you go to university? Or or do we still have to atone for the shit that we did as kids? You know, I haven't thought of the question in that way before because 
I mean, it is just different now because everyone exists online and everything you do is probably on some cloud-based platform, so you don't get control over it. We were joking about how the other radio play we made, I literally destroyed the only copy of it in front of you. Um, That's not possible anymore. Uh, I don't know. I think there's something about being below a certain age where people should get a pass right oh what's the threshold age that's I, so I, yeah this is you wander into this very gray territory i i i would not be able to say and i don't think anyone could but i think we can definitively say that uh a few kids in 10th grade making a radio play uh are not in the same category as who do we want to list who's been canceled i <laughs> Kevin Spacey. Kevin, we're definitely not in Kevin Spacey territory. I also don't have his acting range, but that's really for another podcast. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess I think that the point is is that if you did shitty things when you were a kid, are they consistent with how you carry yourself as an adult, or have you actually changed and grown? Oh. And so now right. we're, we're waiting into we are just getting right into it with very little warm-up we're waiting right into the heavy stuff um so i actually at having you know reconnected with you and and arthur last week and uh started listening to the radio pl- uh, radio play oh my god the podcast particularly the episodes with people who i knew from mm-hmm. from immaculata um I've been like doing extra reflecting on like teen years and whatnot. And uh, I think like what you do as a teen can be predictive, but I think generally is not a really great predictive of the uh, predictor of the kind of person you turn into. Yeah. Um, I think that's fair. Like maybe, maybe it's like you're still the core drives that like decided the like what you did and how you acted at one age might still be present but they manifest in a completely different way when it everything's put through the filter of like an adult's brain with like a properly developed um like schema of morality and whatnot sure 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 no i did and and that makes sense i mean people need to be judged on what they are in the here and now as adults but and it was just sort of a curious question about whether or not uh like there's so few people that i keep in touch with from high school i you know a lot of people sort of imagine like going back and like you know what it would be like if we got to relive high school and some people are nostalgic for high school but not in the least for me i i'm i'm good yeah so uh the, the this notion of like people being nostalgic for high school and like oh those are the best years of your life never did that ever make any sense to me i would say like life has gotten progressively better every year after high school absolutely i've lost weight i've gotten more interesting i've uh, i've had sort of you know milestones in school and work yeah. like literally that like grade eight was kind of like the low end of the parabola it's all <laughs> it's it's all been uphill from well there. we didn't learn parabolas until ninth grade that doesn't make any sense do you remember yes the year you haven't let me finish <laughs> do you remember in 10th grade in homeroom when i bent over to pick up a toonie and i completely <laughs> blew the seam on my dress pants oh yes 
I was completely humiliated. I was so embarrassed. I, you know, already being the fat kid, like your ego is just a very, very fragile thing. And so I go out into the hallway and I wait for my mom to come and bring me a new pair of dress pants. And I just go off to career studies and I say, I'm just going to have to ride this out for the rest of the year. This is, this is not going to end well. Uh, that day was September 11th, 2001. <laughs> And nobody remembered me splitting my pants in the homeroom after that. Whoa. Where to begin? <laughs> Where to begin? What are you up to these days? I have no idea what you've done since grade 12. I mean, right? I could look you up and creep you on LinkedIn or something, but when I search for Stefan Geiger, I get, like, the principal conductor of the Brasilia Symphony Orchestra. Good grief. Um... Jeez. All right. Well, where to begin? I guess we could just talk about now, where I am now, and sure, ignore the, the intervening 16 years. Sure. Uh, so I'm living in Toronto. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I, I expected that comment from someone living in Ottawa. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but that, that, that could be another topic of conversation at some point. Um, it, was, it was a real contentious point at law school where I'd say like 90% of my classmates were from Toronto, and it was this whole thing that like, Ottawa sucks because it's fucking like cow town and everyone's a redneck and there's no good pizza places. And then, oh my god, there's Colonnade. That's like <laughs> Gabriel's. Ugh. Anyway, the point is, it's just you know there was this whole thing where you you went to school downtown and anything past like King Edward or Elgin Street was considered like rural Ottawa. Yes. Yes. So you're in Toronto. So I'm in Toronto and I actually. Let's go back a little bit in time. I moved here in 2013 uh, because I had decided that, um, strangely enough, my psychology degree with a minor in biology just like wasn't opening many doors employment-wise. Um, and I had actually spent a couple years working for the, the uh, federal government, uh, Industry Canada in Ottawa, 2011 through 2013. And uh, while I was there for various reasons that we may or may not get into, I decided I really wanted to like do more education, like get another degree and pivot and uh, try working in private sector and also really, really desperately wanted to get out of Ottawa. And Toronto was really attractive to me. Um, why, why did you desperately want to get out of Ottawa? So one thing was just this, I couldn't deal with the um the notion of like never trying to live somewhere else and it's not like i know plenty of people do just stay where they are and are very happy about it and that is fantastic like me like you like like my brother like other people who i went to high school with in, in ottawa and whatnot but um I, I felt like I would always second guess like whether I had like taken enough risks if I didn't do something like that. Sure. And I wasn't super fond. I, I at no point did I really like like Ottawa to begin with and had a lot of bad memories because I would think about my later childhood and high school as being a particularly miserable period of time for me. And so uh, I didn't really like have much fondness for the city. And I wanted to be in a big city with lots of people. So I did that. And I decided to do uh, my MBA at U of T. So I moved here in 2013. 
did that for two years and actually while I was in the MBA got hired into a small consulting firm um, uh, based in the US and lived in Chicago for the better part of three years and came back uh, in early 2018. See, now that's interesting because Chicago, I mean, that's a town that I would love to visit in greater lengths. I feel like just the architecture alone would make it like a great, you know, week-long trip going to see like Wrigley Field and just like a bunch of tall-ass buildings and things like that. But maybe it's just my own inherent bias being here in Ottawa, but I can't really think of anything that really defines Toronto. Like it's very big and it's very sprawly. And I know they have a few sports teams over there, but like if I go to New York, I'm, you know, uh, I'm just, I'm picturing this, this bustle of life, like the financial ebb and flow, I, you know, same sort of thing with Chicago. I mean, I guess Toronto is in that same sort of uh, vicinity as Chicago. I mean, how do they contrast and compare? Oh, all right. So many different things there. First, I would want to actually ask you to ponder, like, does, does a city need to be defined by something? Like, there's, I, I don't know if I could necessarily put my finger on, like, what defines Toronto or, like, what it what it's known for but like that doesn't matter so much as like all these other little things that make it a great place for me to be right okay like what so uh i love the fact that it is like a busy bustling place i like it feels good to know that um where i am like within within a few hundred meters there's like a hundred other people um, or a thousand other people or i can look down on the street i can look down over bloor street and see cars going by Whereas like suburban life in Ottawa, you could literally look outside or go for a walk and not see another soul uh, the entire yeah, it's time. It's, I mean, <laughs> that has its appeal. I, I am definitely... Has that changed during COVID times at all? No. No, you're still okay being, you know, in the hustle and bustle of people in the... Like, are you in downtown Toronto? Like, yeah, I'm in, in downtown Toronto. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know... I did some sort of driving around with the kids just to get them to sleep, especially early on in COVID. And you're looking at house prices in like Rockland and Larignal and Hawkesbury. And you're like, you know, Amazon delivers everywhere. Yeah. And I can get a lot more bang for my buck. And my closest neighbor is like two miles away. So the chances of getting the Rona are slim to nil. Yeah. I mean, you take the right precautions. Like just because I happen to live in like, a multi-dwelling building and uh uh like i'm walking on downtown sidewalks like i'm not necessarily at much higher risk than someone in suburbia right like you're still going into a grocery store and maybe within a few feet of someone else who's wearing a mask right no i haven't been to a grocery store since march the 12th i bought a couple bags of flour and, and everything's, everything's been delivered I, I, I heard about that bag of flour i've been nothing if not like pretty close to a hermit and i mean i was never really much of a social butterfly facebook has kind of papered over a lot of my just re regular sort of reclusive behavior where people think you're very social but actually you're just posting a bunch of shit on your computer in your basement uh but yeah like th there's probably been entire weeks where i haven't seen someone that isn't a relative uh but 
the computer's there. You have Zoom now. You have, uh, you know, I've had a weekly Fortnite get-together. Uh, you know, you watch movies with people on Plex. It's, you know, I don't know whether or not being in close proximity to people in meat space is really the, the appeal meat that it, it was 10 years ago, 5 so, years ago. So it's, it's, to be clear, like the appeal for me of being in close proximity to people is literally just the knowledge of like, it's like the opposite of being alone and not in the sense of like this, like people are company because they're not company, they're not like hanging out with me, but this, this idea of like being the opposite of isolated perhaps, um, like knowing people want to be where you are. Uh, I think that's really nice and that there's always activity. Like I could go for a stroll on Young Street at 2 a.m. and I would see people walking up and down Young Street. I might not want to talk to them, but. Well, yeah, that's that's another thing entirely. But yeah. that's interesting. So you went from Chicago back to Toronto. Now, yeah. what are you up to these days? So uh, job wise, I work for a uh, global consulting firm and I actually work in uh, learning design, which uh also known as like training i basically build like training programs for consultants and other people within my organization i have known several people who have referred to themselves as consultants and the one thing that they all seem to have in common is that i don't quite understand what they do for a living so can you, can you explain to me what a consultant is? Yeah, there's there's a few different flavors of consultant. And when I when I finished my MBA, I was a proper consultant for nearly three years when I was in Chicago. But consulting, broadly speaking, is basically you hire a consultant because you are outsourcing your thinking or your problem solving. Is is like that's the the most high level way to think about it. So. If you are running a small organization and your IT needs are getting to the point where like you need to build like a database or you need to get a whole bunch of computer hardware in, you're probably going to hire an IT consultant who actually understands how all that stuff works and get them to essentially like loan their expertise and give you recommendations on what you should buy and whether or not you need to like hire someone to manage the stuff. So that's a type of consulting, like that's IT consulting. At my old office, we had a guy named Wade, and he was a part-time firefighter. And when he wasn't busy, he came by and he fixed the computers. And uh, one time, my computer kept flashing and told me that I was using an illegal version of Windows. (laughs) And he told me not to worry about it. Yeah, yeah. And that, uh, yeah, Wade Is he a consultant? I mean, in, in, in a very real sense, he was consulted on IT-based things and provided consultative advice. So, yeah. So I'm just wondering if there needs to be a little more rigor to that definition because I don't know that you would necessarily want to, you know, sort of lump yourself in with Wade over there. Well, to be clear, I'm no longer a true consultant. I just work for a consultancy. But um, the kind of consulting that... I did in the States was actually around what's called strategy execution, which sounds a little scary. It sounds like buzzwords, if I'm being well, fully honest with yeah, you. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I have learned post-MBA that uh, 
the amount of jargon that gets used uh, just goes up and up in the business world. And to an extent, the amount of success and prestige around an organization or an individual is associated with the fancy words that they use. Like, at least my fancy words are in Latin, so I can pretend that I'm a wizard yes. or something like that. But, but what is strategy execution? So strategy execution is basically when a company decides, okay, here's, here's what we need to do. Here's what we need to change about our business or, or how, we, how we work. And actually making that happen is not just a simple matter of the CEO of the organization sending out an email to say, um, instead of doing X and Y, we're now going to do X and Z or something like that. Um, it takes like potentially reorganizing the, the company with like different team structures, hiring different kinds of people, um, changing the incentives within the organization and how people are compensated. Layoffs? I mean, potentially. Like the, the consultants in office space who like yes, went in and fired right. everyone from their own jobs. I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely a real aspect of consulting where it is, it is about figuring out how to handle workforce reductions. Um, but uh, so strategy execution can involve a lot of other things like literally communicating what needs to change to the entire organization. And it's, like I said, it's not just a simple matter of that email because every person with their own respective role has a different, needs to interpret that strategy in a different way to understand how it changes their day to day. And just as importantly, they need to actually want to make that change and be bought into it. So there's a pretty strong emotional component around like getting people bought in and excited about the future vision of an organization. So I did a lot of uh, sort of communication and uh, training stuff around new strategies in a lot of Fortune 100 companies in primarily in the, the United States. A lot of Fortune 100 companies. That sounds exciting. So ones presumably that I've heard of. Yes, ones you've definitely heard of. But you won't tell me what they are. No. Consultant doesn't so. kiss and tell. Neither does a lawyer, but, I mean, you know, if we stop the camera for a bit, I mean, I could, I could name some names. <laughs> we can have yeah. an off-the-record conversation later. <laughs> they're, they're, they're not really all that interesting, if I'm being fully honest, so yeah. I don't have to worry about that. Okay, so I have this company, and the culture has become toxic. Everybody badmouths everybody in the lunchroom productivity is an all-time low i'm just making a hypothetical over here um you know there's there's a lot of infighting drama it's a lot of high school kind of shit and and my sales are plummeting because people just aren't as efficient as i'd like them to be so i bring in the consultant because i've you know had some sternly worded emails and i put up a, a poster by the photocopier saying work harder and, and neither of them appears to be effective. So like, what do you do in a situation like that? So, I mean, that's a, like what you're describing. is like a particular scenario for a consultant, uh, probably a rather specialized consultant that does like turnarounds or something. But like, it, it, it's so broad in, in that case. Um, You'd, you'd first want to figure out like, cool, what, like, if this business is failing, like, what should change about the business? Is it, is it a problem that like, the strategy of this business sucks? Or 
it's just doing a really bad job on delivering that strategy. Whichever of those is true, and maybe it's both, you need to address. Like, come up with a new strategy. Well, what could this company be really good at that's, that's similar enough? Um, or, or mm, we need to like, retrain this workforce or change like, what their incentives are or uh, hire people with different backgrounds. When you're dealing with these very large corporations, you mentioned the Fortune 100, and we're in this era of sort of late-stage capitalism. Do you ever find that the incessive drive to maximize shareholder output comes to odds with what you want to do in terms of dealing with a company structure, perhaps in fundamental or systemic ways that they're reticent to do because... They, they have this sort of ulterior motive to just kind of cut and slash and burn? Or are you the one advising them to do the cut and slash and burn to maximize shareholder output? So uh, my answer is going to disappoint you. I have never done strategy consulting myself professionally. I'm actually, what I was doing when I was working in the States is pretty much the organiz- like the consulting organizations who would get hired to do strategy work to tell the company, hey, here's, to tell the CEO, hey, uh, here's what you should probably try to pull off in the next like couple years in terms of making your business not suck or making it better. We would get called, my consulting agency would get called in after those consultants left and left the organization with a 150 page PowerPoint deck explaining, hey, here's your new strategy. And we would take that strategy that 150 page PowerPoint and figure out how to translate it into actionable stuff that everyone in the organization can understand from very top to very bottom. So it was really about communication when I talk about strategy execution. The answer to your question though, having seen stuff indirectly in my consulting stuff and and been in the business world for a while is that absolutely is a reality where uh, the pressures of shareholder demands and and whatnot make it so that uh, people's time horizons are potentially shorter than they should be and their incentives are not where they should be. But I don't think that answer is going to surprise you. I'm hearing a lot about sort of teams of various consultants and 150 page PowerPoint slides. And I realize the irony of a someone formally trained as a lawyer saying this but it sounds like a lot of eloquent sophistry and i don't know that i necessarily understand all of it i i'm i'm still sort of trying to grasp like what does a a typical day for steph geiger look like well okay well we haven't even gotten to my current typical day we're still talking about my life in chicago and all right well let's 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 fast forward to like let's say February 2020, when life was something normal, but not quite. A distant memory. Yeah. So um, I work and live in downtown Toronto. Um, Because I work in a uh, geographically very scattered team, I've actually always had the freedom to work uh, remotely and work from home. But I opted to go into the office most days because I appreciated just a tiny bit of social like connection and like crossing paths with colleagues in the office. Um, and 
I did mention I do learning design. And, and what that means is when someone in my organization decides that there's some unmet need in development or, or training, so maybe it's the consultants need to um, learn more about a particular industry or the partners need to develop this skill set like apprenticeship or something like that. Um, my, the, the team of people I work with, we essentially get like hired internally to design and develop a like training or a learning program that can get delivered to people within the organization. And that can either look like a traditional classroom setting, like an instructor led training, um, or nowadays that's like virtual training over Zoom, or it can be like some electronic module or some really big learning journey involving a whole bunch of milestones and like trips to certain conferences and whatnot. So like, obviously you can't give me too many in terms of specifics, but like what was a thing that you taught someone internally to do? Like, did you just like sit down someone and like teach them the ins and outs of Python or <laughs> was, was, was there, was there like a moment where you're like, you know, you need to teach them interpersonal skills because they were just being too much of an engineer. Yeah. Like, what, I can certainly, I can certainly tell you about a number of the, the topics that um, I've developed trainings on and, and, to be clear, as, as the person who's developing them, I'm not doing any teaching. You know how they say those who can't teach? I yes. don't even teach. <laughs> so you, you can't even teach. I can't even teach. Uh, maybe one day. Um, so let's see. Uh, one of the earliest programs that I worked on was uh, to make a self contain sort of 90 minute in-person program uh, mm -hmm. that targeted the team leaders in the consulting side of the organization uh, and helped them uh, come to grips a bit more quickly with like how to be a good team leader, like how to both manage the project that they're on, like the client project, and also manage and lead the team of consultants working beneath them. So that's okay. one project. Um, okay. Another one that I did was actually not entirely dissimilar for uh, somewhat more senior uh, people leaders, um, i.e. managers, um, and giving them uh, skills around being better people developers and uh, learning how to both set the tone for their own team in terms of like their attitude and the culture they want to create and also like how to provide good feedback how to make observations um, things like we, that we called that we called that micro teaching when I was in my in my grad program and I had to teach the other TAs how to not suck at their job and <laughs> it's in micro teaching yeah that's apparently that's a pedagogical term where it's teaching about teaching i'm not teaching you how to teach i'm teaching you how to convey information in a meaningful way and to like give people feedback in a way that like mm. inspires them to do more or this sounds like meta teaching well, it was called micro teaching that was on the 
on the pamphlets, but I can see how <laughs> it will be. I, I can see how meta teaching. I think the idea was that you were learning small, discrete skills rather yeah. than actually teaching about a specific subject. But I can see how meta teaching would work as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, another project that uh, that I I did. Hmm, what's a good one to pick? Was actually uh, developing some of the materials for people who are just joining the firm. So uh, what's called onboarding materials, where it's like, hey, welcome to the organization. Here's who we are. Here's the work that we do. Here's how we do this work. Here's like where you fit in and how you contribute to what we do. And here's like the style of problem solving we like to use and and how much we collaborate and what we collaborate on and the culture around like you asking dumb questions like that kind of stuff what is the culture around asking dumb questions don't do it (laughs) um i'm fortunate enough to work in an organization that uh is pretty cool about asking dumb questions lord knows i've asked my share um, but I can tell you from my experience in consulting that uh, that gets a bit dicier when you're client facing mm-hmm. uh, because asking dumb questions in front of the CEO of a company can maybe damage the credibility of your consulting organization. But again, thankfully, I'm not doing that kind of work anymore. I'm hearing a lot about consultants and managers and these large companies, and all I keep thinking of is like a Dilbert cartoon. I don't know yeah. if you you. You're a fan of Dilbert, or if that resonates with you? I'm no longer a fan of the uh, cartoonist, but uh, is that Dilbert's great. Scott, is that because Scott Adams claimed that uh, Donald Trump is the most amazing persuasive leader of all time? Yeah, I mean, that's one in a list, but yes, yes. What else did he do? I, I can't recall any of the other specifics, but I know that's not his only offense. Okay, he's done other things. We'll, we'll, have, to, we'll have to look him up on the old Wikipedia. Yeah, no, we're not. I mean, I've, I've occasionally Googled in the middle of a podcast, but I want it to be very, you know, just organic, shoot from the hip. And I mean, that's the only thing I know about him from the top of my head is that uh, he really hitched his wagon to that guy. And in 2016, <laughs> he seemed like a genius, like he called it. And then, then now in 2020, it's like, well, you know, you don't bet on red twice in a row at the roulette table. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, a bit of a digression there. You were bringing up how this all reminds you of Dilbert. Yes. Was that it? <laughs> that, that, that was pretty I mean, much it. We went off, it was a fun tangential, and I didn't really have anything else to kind of uh, uh, lead into that. It was just I sort of heard that, and I said, hey, here's the thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've, I mean, if you've listened to these podcasts. They're not really – they're sort of non sequitur. It's really just about – trying to connect and come up with these sort of high-level ideas wherever they might appear. So, yeah. you know, I mean, it really doesn't matter how uh, how we get to there. Have you kept in touch at all with high school people, people that we know in common? So, no. Uh, you, you commented earlier how you don't keep in touch really with many people from high school, and I've kept in touch with essentially no one from from our high school in fact essentially no one so um 
I guess I can just say people's names. That's not that's not particularly inconsiderate. But uh, do you remember, I don't, I, unless they don't want to be associated with you. Otherwise, I think it should be. Fine. <laughs> oh boy, uh, do you remember Sandro and uh, Lydia? I I know them quite well. Yes, yeah. I do remember them. So yeah. so I bumped into them. Uh, I bumped into Lydia actually like a few years ago when I was in Ottawa visiting for Christmas, um, and that was like the first time I'd been in the same like space as anyone from Mac pretty much since like Carlton when I might have bumped into them randomly. Uh, and I met up with Arthur in LA in spring of 2017. And that was wow. the first time I'd really, uh, I'd seen him since we graduated. Yeah. I didn't see him for like a good five, six years. And then he just showed up at my wedding. He took a red eye from LA to Ottawa and then back. Yeah. I was I was super impressed that he did that for me. It was really uh, I I was flattered, but um, you know besides that I I've kept in touch with Jeff Giacomelli. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got a lovely family. I've seen him a few times. Like you guys were you guys were thick as thieves for a very good part of high school. We were yeah falling out there right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is true. Um, uh, who else? trying to think um really yeah the the, like arthur at this point is basically the person who i've kept in contact with most because we actually chatted a fair bit when i uh was living in the states but uh you're rapidly becoming like a very close second i think just through this one conversation and i should say like arthur since appearing on who cares if you listen has been very aggressively like putting guests towards me as to like you should have this person on <laughs> you should have this person on and he's becoming and that's he, what he, happened he, he is one of the larger fans of the podcast so i'm giving him considerable leeway in deciding who he wants to hear on the podcast yeah. and you know your uh, your name was was top of the heap and you know we had to strike while the iron was hot especially given that we were reminiscing on uh, old regrettable radio plays of dubious qualities mm-hmm. do, do you have any regrets about high school anything where you would go back and say you know what if i got a do over i would do x instead of y or just x i mean i think i could say almost categorically everything about high school was regrettable and i wish i could redo it well sure i mean <laughs> uh, you know i think that's why I'm not going to disagree with that, but I feel like that's almost a cop-out answer. There's got to be something like specific where you're like, I really wish that I hadn't done blank. So what I would say is um, hindsight being 2020, and obviously having gone on a, a developmental journey just like anyone else has over the past 15 years, um, I wish I had been less of an asshole, but... Uh, you know, I was an angsty teen. I was incredibly neurotic and uh, angry about a lot of things and only modeled the behavior of like other people who I was closest to and they weren't necessarily the best people to model behavior off of. And it uh, made it so that I probably enjoyed high school a lot less than I should have. And I'm sure uh, I wasn't always enjoyable to be around. So that's probably my biggest regret high school wise. 
I, I definitely also think I was a huge asshole, but I don't know that I'm less angsty and angry as a 34-year-old. No, but I you have feel, a filter. I don't know that I have a filter. I think what it is is I have a veneer. So I have so so people have heard this and said I've never heard you so even keeled and calm as you are on your podcast. And yeah. I'm like, yes, but that's a podcast. I'm recording something. You haven't heard me when I slip on the driveway or when I stub <laughs> my toe on Duplo or when I'm just not in a good mood. Dude, I've got to say, I could still like hear some of those instances of you like freaking out about something, like echoing in my brain, like in high school, whatnot, when we would like be uh, dicking around during lunch or whatever, um, I, or you ripping I, I, your pants in the middle of homeroom. That's that was one. That was one time, but I mean, it was quite a memorable one. <laughs> so I mean, the, and I did bring it up, so I can't say I don't want to talk about it after having brought it. Well, up. we don't. We don't need to dig into it, but. Um, so I studied personality psychology because for some reason I thought that would be a good idea in undergrad. That was actually, like that sounds I, like fun. It is fun. I did find it interesting. Um, and one of the things that I learned in personality psychology that I thought was really cool is, um, we all have traits and, and there's different frameworks within personality psychology that we use to sort of simplify how you can like categorize people. That sounds really cold and calculating and it's not, but. That's such a Taurus thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, so one of, those, one of those frameworks that's probably most commonly referred to is the uh, Izinkian Big Five Personality Traits or. I'm, I'm referencing it daily, but just for some of my <laughs> listeners, what is the Izinkian Big Five theory? All right, well, let me address your listener directly. So you may also be familiar, uh, potentially familiar with the term ocean, and it's actually referring to the same thing, but these five personality traits are openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion slash introversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Well, the first four sound very positive, but then neuroticism sounds like sort of a pejorative. Well, so it's, it's interesting because a lot of people, like neuroticism is quite negative. In fact, the, the textbook definition of neuroticism is the tendency to experience negative emotions. A lot of people think of neuroticism as like Woody Allen being like a worry wart or something. That's not really what neuroticism looks or feels like. So it's, it's the likelihood that you experience upset, anger, sadness, um, worry, and that those feelings linger with you and are harder to get rid of and like reset from than uh, say happiness or joy. Oh, that's totally me. Right? So I stay angry for days at shit, but when something cheers me up, like here and there, gone. Very fleeting. So ephemeral. Yes, uh, you, you and I may have this in common. Um, I actually, in undergrad, because you of course do a whole bunch of personality assessments and self-assessments. Like Myers-Briggs, that kind of stuff, right? I actually didn't do Myers-Briggs until grad school and, and my, my job, but um, like really long, like 200 item assessments. And I actually scored, the category I scored in neuroticism in terms of like how many like strong neuroticism traits I displayed 
the results said that it put me in a category that I was highly likely to develop or have developed a neuroticism-based personality disorder. <laughs> What's a, what, what would be a neuroticism-based personality disorder? Like anxiety? It's a bipolar, great question. What? I don't know what, uh, no. So something like bipolar uh, disorder is not technically uh, a per, I don't believe it. You would consider it a, a personality disorder. Uh, but a uh, neuroticism-based thing, yeah, I actually don't, I don't know what would be categorized as a neuroticism-based personality disorder, because obviously I've been using a lot of the psychology knowledge over the past 15 years. Um, but what I wanted to say about that interesting thing that I learned is people have these certain traits, and like if you imagine me scoring super high in neuroticism at age 20 or whenever I did this self-assessment, uh, pretty much universally, all people, no matter where their traits are, regress more toward the mean as they grow older. And that actually continues like into your 60s and 70s. So you become, if you're a really, if you're a really neurotic person, you become a less neurotic person. If you're uh, a really disagreeable person, you become a somewhat more agreeable person as you age, which is actually kind of a lovely thing to hang on to that like, on so average, you're always getting better. So life hack moment. If you're always sort of, you know, heading towards a mean, like if there's sort of a an evening out in your old age, you want to start life as like a real dick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so because then, people will see that transition over your life. Yeah, like you don't want to be like a really like easygoing, optimistic, upbeat guy. And then when you're in your 50s, they're like, hey, man, you've changed. Yeah, I mean, how'd that work out for Sean Connery? I don't know where where you'd say he was on his journey because people was seemed, he a happy, upbeat guy. I don't know that he was ever a happy, upbeat guy, but I'm, I've been really perplexed at how um, when he died, like all, all the obits would happen and like people on Reddit and whatnot would be like paying tribute and being like, oh, it's so sad we lost Sean Connery. And I'm I'm there thinking, has everyone forgotten that this guy has publicly endorsed beating women repeatedly? And even when challenged actor. directly, he still defends it. And his first wife left him because he abused her. And we're like, oh, it's such a shame he's gone. Like... We just forget but, that because he he had a great accent and did a few I, movies. I don't think we forget it, but I think at the same time, when we're looking at works of art to the extent that you can call cinema art, um, we can become infatuated and love and really enjoy a piece of art and not necessarily uh, want to associate with the artist themselves. So... The, I might enjoy reading Dilbert. I might not think the world of Scott Adams. Mm. Uh, I enjoy listening to the music of Richard Wagner, but I don't necessarily want to style myself as some German nationalist proto-Nazi. Um, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Where, you know, I had this discussion on my first podcast with John, where we were talking about Woody Allen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Woody Allen and Roman Polanski and uh, Kevin Spacey and um, the list goes on of people in Hollywood who have done egregious things and abused their station and their power. 
but they produced really good movies that people really enjoy and mm-hmm. that have really brought joy to millions of people's lives. So do we th- can you throw out the baby with the bathwater or is that too simplistic? I just so this is a very interesting question, um, but I guess what I'm saying is like you can still you can still like something that that person did, but it just seems weird for like a celebrity to to die and all the reporting to be a very uncomplicated and entirely like glowing review and not mention like oh yeah by the way this person had some really problematic views but don't we do that whenever anybody dies i mean isn't that just the i don't want to say the polite thing to do but maybe it's the polite thing to do that at that point they're no longer able to defend themselves or sue you for slander or 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 you know offer a rebuttal you didn't put it to them while they were alive and so now well, we dead. don't do it universally Think. Do you think O.J. No. Simpson is going to get a glowing obit? Do you think Harvey Weinstein is going to get a glowing obit? Yes, but they've been thoroughly discredited in their lifetime. I think he was still a celebrated actor, even while he was alive, notwithstanding the things that he said. Mm. Like, he was out there campaigning for the Scottish Independence Party and yeah. all that. Like, he, he carried a lot of gravitas in his own little sphere of the world. So... You know, if people are going out retroactively and trying to say that, you know, I don't even know if they're going to say cancel him or not. I mean, that is sort of an interesting one where, you know, people are digging up tweets that people had 10 years ago that were kind of racist or sexist or problematic for whatever reason. And I don't like the word problematic because it suggests that there's a problem and you can't be bothered to identify what it is. I, it was such a grad school word. I mean, I find this text really problematic. Really? What's the problem? Tell me. Or it's not a problem. But, uh, but, 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 yeah, I mean, he, was, he seemed to be very upfront about the things that he believed in, and he wasn't challenged on it in any meaningful way in his life, I don't think. Um, and, you know, he made these movies that people enjoy. I'm not defending him as a wife beater. For the record, but I'm just, I guess, I guess what I'm asking is people, people don't know him as a person. I don't know him any more than I know anybody that I've seen in the movie. All I can appreciate about him is the character that he plays on the screen. So in the sense that that character or the person behind that character has died, is it, is it disingenuous for me to be sad, even though the person behind that character might've been a piece of shit? So fair, but then I would say if 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 we're mourning the loss of say Sean Connery, implicit in that is that like we're mourning the fact that he's not going to be in another movie that's going to like entertain us again. To which I would say, shouldn't we have mourned the loss of Sean Connery as an actor when he like decided to retire or ended his career with like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Sure, sure. It's it. I mean, nostalgia is an interesting thing, right? Mm-hmm. It allows us to look. You, you'll back have to. You'll have to past. keep in mind I'm German, so you're going to have to try really hard to explain nostalgia to me. It was it was developed by Swiss mercenaries. They were the first to <laughs> have categoric. No, this is true. This is true. It originally the first documented. It wasn't called nostalgia, but the first documented instances of nostalgia were among Swiss mercenaries that were fighting in various armies 
across Europe and describing this overwhelming desire to go back to their home villages that caused many of them to be physically ill. Yeah. And so it became this this sickness of time that that people experienced. And one of the interesting things about it is that it's almost always existing in this kind of not illogical but supralogical state where it doesn't really it, it you realize that it's kind of bullshit. But at the same time like that bullshit makes you happier than, mm-hmm. than the gritty truth ever could. Like, I'll give you an example, like Greece. People love the idea of, like, leather jackets and jukeboxes and greasers on <laughs> motorcycles and dancing around. But, like, do you ever notice how whenever they do a Greece revival, they don't have, like, segregated bathrooms or, you know, civil rights violations yeah. or, you know, women being forced to stay at home and not contribute in the workforce? You know, it's not that those are omitted. It's not like the people who wrote these 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 fifties nostalgia pieces are oblivious to it. It's that they've somehow managed to compartmentalize their their love of this forlorn era. You know, you can be nostalgic for the Middle Ages or Victorian England if you watch, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch's James Bond or what or not James Bond, the Sherlock Holmes, what am I saying? You know, although I would watch him as James Bond now that I say that since we've been talking about Sean Connery. Yeah, he would work. It would be okay. Rowan Atkinson would be my first choice. He's already done Johnny English. He's halfway there. He's halfway there. That would be that would be an extraordinary pivot and extraordinary decision from from Eon Productions and whatnot to go with Rowan Atkinson. I, I very much like the idea of Idris Elba. I think he'd be amazing. He, he'd be okay. Catherine's very big on Idris Elba. Personally, as for greatest James Bonds of all time, and I know we've completely derailed what I was talking about before, but that's fine. Uh, Roger Moore, mm. Pierce Brosnan. Mm. Um, gonna say, well, it doesn't really matter after that, but I'm gonna say Sean Connery, and then kind of the others, and then, and <laughs> the then others. Daniel, Timothy and then Dalton, Daniel Craig. and and, and uh, Daniel Lazenby. I think of the others. George, isn't it George Lazenby? George, thank you. Yeah, George Lazenby. Yeah, and then Daniel Craig. Just like I really dislike when people say that Idris Elba doesn't look classy enough to be James Bond. That's because a I very, hey, there's erased. a problematic statement. No, it's not problematic. It's yeah, racist. we can identify the problem. It is, it is overtly and covertly <laughs> racist, particularly because Daniel Craig looks like a guy who just like nicked your mom's VCR and is selling it out of the back of a van. He doesn't look like a secret agent. Yeah. He's just too gritty. Like the whole point is that James Bond is slick as oil. He's just so smooth. So and yet he also kills people. I actually and boy, this is quite a rabbit hole to go down. But I I read or heard at some point that like in a lot of ways Daniel Craig when they cast him was actually truer to type for James Bond than any previous actor because um, he was actually relatively young compared to the other Bonds and uh bond has been described and thought of as like a blunt instrument so having like a relatively large stocky guy who's like kind of a jerk fits the james bond persona pretty well and i think we just get attached to the like interpretations from previous actors and decide that's what's truest to the character well Well, well, there's the actual source material 
why is the source material paramount? Why does the original author's intent get paramountcy? I mean, th I, I'm not saying it necessarily should. I think there's definitely plenty of works out there where the movie or the, uh, the someone else's interpretation of that original story is better than the original. But I mean, to, to come back full circle to everything that we're kind of encapsulating here, and I think this is really interesting. So, I mean, on the one hand, uh, you know, we were talking about this this desire to kind of go back and be less neurotic and be less of an asshole and, 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 and really just look at uh, being able to... Uh, um, I don't want to say change who we are, but 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 sort of compartmentalize things that we did that we don't like that we regret saying that's not really me and and understand that we kind of exist on this plane and we're not kind of fixed into these roles. But at the same time, we're really sort of nostalgic for these people who may be monsters on some sort of plane. But they're fixed in these particular roles and we remember them for that mm -hmm. and we love them for that. And so we're willing to kind of gloss over or, or look past all these other things they do. And it's like it seems like we all kind of exist on this very long sort of cosmic plane where you can't really hammer down somebody and say you're an X or you're a Y. Well, that, yes. And, and this is like the nature of like human existence and, and reality is that our brains are much better equipped to think of things as being static and of people as being static when in reality everything is always in flux and our lives take place over a time scale that's kind of hard for us to comprehend do we do we notice people as being uh static and i don't i don't you know obviously you're not a phd in psychology i'm not asking you to to sort of dig deep into the science there but i would assume from the purpose of threat analysis just sort of you know working through our limbic system you really do have to picture people as continuously posing a threat until they prove otherwise so is your question around so you said so you said you said we you know the the human brain views people in these very static boxes and i'm just saying like do they do we not we do you people on this very long sort of horizon of of change so i think it's somewhat contextual like in a completely transactional relationship or like with someone you have like one encounter with and then like see very briefly for periods afterward you you might have a like a very very static view of like who they are and what they represent but your life partner for example you probably ought not to have a static view of who they are and think that they're locked into who they were when you met them 50 years later well, I think a lot of people do. I think, I think it's a very a big of, source of problems. Yes. It leads to a lot of dissatisfaction yeah. because it's one saying, you know, I thought you were going to change and you didn't. And the other one saying, you changed and I don't like it. Yeah. And then this becomes a source of tension and, and, and conflict. But, but that's very interesting. Um, y you're right. And I mean, I'm just thinking to our conversation right now. I don't know that we really enjoyed our necessarily our our dynamic as of like grade 11 or grade 12 we weren't exactly the best of friends and yet here we are and this has been a very enjoyable talk and i i think that uh it's sort of testament to us being in a very different place in a very different mindset than maybe we were uh 16 years ago 
I, I think that's all true. And in, in my case, I can also say like hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Um, that's what, the slogan of, of, of this year. Yeah, fair. <laughs> um, but like when I think back to high school and again, over the past few days, it's what's been on my mind a lot is like uh, Yumi and Arthur and like Jeff hanging out and like all sorts of memories spanning like seventh grade through 12th grade and uh, coming back to the notion of nostalgia the like the moments of nostalgia the fleeting ones that I have of like my high school years are like us all hanging out at lunch like making each other laugh and doing ridiculous things um, and if someone had asked me how important that stuff was at like the end of 12th grade when I was like 17 or 18 I wouldn't have rated it very highly but like now I look back and I'm like oh yeah those were some of the highlights of being a teenager so hindsight 2020 that's weird but I I, I can agree with that it's it's not these sort of big overarching things but it's it's a lot of these very small discreet little actions that you know yeah. you look back on and you say you know what that was kind of cool even though i didn't really appreciate it at the time i and, like that and i would also i would also venture that uh specifically for you and me if we want to try to really psychoanalyze here coming back to do. what we were saying about like static perceptions of people um you and I actually first met in 1995. Way, way back yeah. at the program for, for gifted, gifted learners. learners. It's making its Which at I've... least second appearance on the podcast. Maybe more. No, no. I think your Arthur wasn't in there, or was he? No, you, you talked to you talked to John about it. I mean, but he, no, no, no. no, no. I'm not talking about people who were in PGL. I just mean that you've brought it up on the podcast. Sorry. Rest in peace, Miss Nyokaitis. Yes, rest in um, peace, Miss Nyokaitis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, I think that really stunted my development as <laughs> a human being. I really, we, that all really resonated with me. We could talk for hours on this specific topic. Go ahead. We were, we were corralled off once a week in the late 90s to play with the internet and do Mensa problems and basically be told that we were smarter than everybody else. And... I think in hindsight, it probably had they just put us in like a, a, a utility closet and told us that we were dumb and we weren't going to amount to anything. I feel like maybe that negative pressure would have kind of forced more creative energy than 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 the inverse did. Yeah, I don't I don't think I can disagree with you on on any of that. I don't know what PGL really helped me do i sure enjoyed the problem of the day because it was like we'd come in and there'd be a fun riddle to solve and that would be like a quarter of our day but i seldom got it right and it really sort of bruised my ego that i yeah. wasn't the smartest one in the smart class yeah. i enjoyed being a big fish in a small pond um and you made a great point when you were talking to john about it how i think i think it was john you were talking to about it how like all of a sudden you weren't the smartest person in the room and that's actually like really challenging probably a good thing to experience but like i think for someone like me it might have uh gone a little too far in terms of like shaking my own confidence and in my intellect there's a whole field of study related to sports psychology mm -hmm. that deals with exactly that yeah. where these people that were like the best in junior hockey are all of a sudden very mediocre when they get to 
you know the NHL or whatever just to give an example and and they just can't deal like it it causes you to buckle and the people who end up being the best coaches for example in pro hockey aren't the Wayne Gretzky's and the Mario Lemieux they're the guys who are like the fourth line grinders the marginal AHL guys the guys that had to scrap for every little bit and that had no presumptions that they were the best at everything yeah nothing came easy to them so yeah i don't want to i don't want to sound like an organizational psychologist but i i do find that that stuff to be really interesting so yeah anyway um so so to come back before we delve too deeply into pgo and there's more to say there um i was sort of positing like why you and i had like the relationship that, that we did and i think if you, if you look back like back when we first met um when in it was fourth grade uh it wasn't a super positive thing um because there was a whole bunch of like well there were other shitty people involved and like name calling and 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 bullying and i think um we both initially had the impression of the other as like oh this isn't like a this person's kind of a jerk or whatever and even if in middle school and earlier high school, we ended up hanging out. Um, and like, I mean, like I went to your birthday party at least once. Like we were we were eventually at that stage. Like I, yeah. I bought you like Onimusha for PS2 <laughs> one year. Um, and uh, whatnot, I, I think that always still like that dynamic or like that, that mentality still existed. And maybe I'm only speaking for myself, but we come back to this notion of like thinking people are static. And right. in my reflection, I feel like I always had this idea of you, like, that was, like, unfairly negative, and I was holding on to it instead of, like, paying attention to the person you had already changed to be in high school. Fair. Yeah. Anyway. As it, I, I don't know. I thought we got along well in, in PGL, and I thought it was really more of the high school where the animosity arose, but I could be wrong. I mean, I'm just generally antagonistic. Is all that so, Jeff Giacomelli really messing everything up? Oh, Jeff's a great guy. I know. I, I mean, know. I really, you know, I, I think of you guys, like, you, you were friends for a very, very long time, and then there was a falling out, and I don't want to, you know, I'm here on a podcast. I don't want to, you know, bring up personal stuff like that, but... You know, I've kept. I mean, in touch it was, with him it was high school, like it's it's high school shit. Yeah, it's high school shit. But you know what? He's a really good guy, and I don't know when's if you guys he going to be on the pod. Again. You know, I might have to ask him. I keep in touch with him and his wife. I got to see their lovely family back. I'm going to say the Labor Day weekend. It was a long weekend. I can't remember which one. Um, yeah. That would that would be fun. I mean, this is really just my own little personal project for catching up with people that I think are interesting. So why not? Mm -hmm. But um, you know, it's one of those things where you look at people you were friends with in high school that you don't talk to anymore, and you're like, you know, where wh what would our relationship be like if I just happened to catch up with you in this day and age? Are you sinking? No, I'm not sinking, but I am adjusting my standing desk. All right. Well. My lumbar is also giving out on me. Um, this has been really interesting and really enlightening. I, I very much enjoyed catching up with you. So I think in another 16, 17 years, we should sit down for another hour and a bit. And, yeah, uh, for season and 17 try... of Who Cares If You Listen. 
I, I this might blow up by then. Yeah. We have no idea. I mean, if I start making like Joe Rogan Spotify money, I'm closing up the law office and I'm just going to be I'll probably have a nicer studio, maybe a second chair in here by then. Maybe. But uh, yeah, a table. It'll look a bit less like Ted Kaczynski's lair behind you. I don't know if I would want that though. I kind of like the vibe. I thought about taking a picture of this behind me and then making it my Zoom virtual background so that I always <laughs> look like I'm in my basement even when I'm not in my basement. I mean, I don't know why it isn't your podcast art. Jeez. Well, so originally when I took my podcast art, I was at another desk, but that happens to be in a dead zone for the Wi-Fi in my uh, in my office or in my basement. So, <laughs> so the podcast I did with John, there were many sort of false starts and stops. And then finally, it just became so frustrating that I said to hell with it. I'm I'm going to go where the Wi-Fi is good, and I'm immediately below the router where I am here now. So I'm getting full bars for playing Fortnite or doing my podcasts oh. or sending irate emails. So, Steph, this was really fun. I'm glad we got to do it. I have to thank Arthur for the idea, and um, yeah, let's let's actually keep in touch if you're ever back in town yeah absolutely and um it, it has been really great to catch up even if we kind of just delved right into like deep convos about various things this was a lot of fun and uh that's the format man that's all i do yeah <laughs> all right and your and your camera froze anyway so i think that's the perfect time oh to, wow uh, too much to motion wrap everything up <laughs> i hope it's a really a attractive one. freeze frame of me it's it's not bad and just like that, another episode is in the can. Thank you so much to Steph Geiger for sitting down and talking with me. You know, it's interesting. Nobody likes everything about themselves. And I think having a chance to kind of reflect on high school life really hit that home. But no one likes any everything about anyone else either. To think of our discussion about Sean Connery. Everybody exists on a spectrum, and I think the best takeaway that we can get from a conversation like this is to be able to recognize and accept the things that we like about people and um, sort of carve those off and, and allow them to, to exist without rejecting or accepting anyone holistically and unconditionally. Um, I probably have more to say on that, but I have a cat that is purring right next to my microphone who has knocked off my pop filter. So I think that is my cue to exit. Thank you so much, and I will hope to hear from you, or not hear from you because I'm doing the talking and I don't actually hear anything that you say, but I hope you listen to another one of these podcasts again.